Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Sal Grover, uh, Australian activist, former uh, screenwriter, Hollywood screenwriter, uh, and app developer who is now embroiled in a legal case, which I kid you not, is called uh, Tickle v Giggle. It uh, has a silly name, but it has uh, very important consequences for sex-based rights in Australia. Um, Sal talks us through the origins of the case, why it's so important for Australian women's rights and the impact that it's had on her personally. There's an extended version of this episode. It's available at louiseperry.substack.com, where as ever, you can also find the fortnightly bonus episodes I do with my husband, the MMM chat community, and the whole back catalogue of extended episodes. Enjoy. Before we start the episode, I want to briefly tell you about two things. Firstly, we'll be hosting a second Maiden Mother matchmaking event on the evening of February 19th at James Chabarini's justly famous Il Palombe restaurant in central London. Everyone there will be there because they are looking to find a spouse. If you're interested in applying for a ticket, then head over to louiseperry.substack.com or follow the link in the show notes for more details. Secondly, many of you will know that Christianity is a subject of fascination for me and the role of Christianity in shaping the modern world is a theme I return to again and again on the podcast. My view is that we can't really understand ourselves or understand the world around us without getting to grips with it, which is why I'm very glad to put you towards a new online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, thoughtful, engaging. It assumes absolutely no prior knowledge. It's presented by the wonderful Glenn Scrivener, who has been a guest on the MMM podcast previously, and I've also been a guest on his show. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions, which are based around some beautiful animated stories that illustrate the Christian message. You can check it out for free at 321course.com forward slash MMM. Just enter your email, choose a password, and you're in. There's no spam, there's no fees. Just visit 321course.com forward slash MMM. So let's start at the top. You created this app, which is causing like complete legal meltdowns <laughs> in the nation of Australia. <laughs> why did you, why, tell me the story about how you came to create the app and then how it came to be such a, I don't know, I want to say shit show. <laughs> There's a more sophisticated <laughs> legal term available. <laughs> Basically, I had, when I was 24, I got on a plane and moved to Hollywood. I wanted to be a screenwriter. Um, and I, I knew two people in LA, um, an ex-boyfriend of mine and one of my really good friends, ex-girlfriends. <laughs> and that was it. And so I, but I was like, I'm going to go over there and, and write movies. And in hindsight, I actually got into the industry really quickly. It only took a year for me to sell my first um, piece of work, which selling that piece of work meant that I could get a working visa because I was on a visa waiver. I was flying in and out every three months. Um, so I, I was, a, I got signed to the biggest, one of the biggest talent agencies. I got a manager. I got the visa and the visa, and this is a really important point. The visa was sponsored by my manager and it meant that, and just the type of visa you get as you're called an, um, an alien of extraordinary ability. It's like the talent visa. 
What and... a great expression. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. You're sort of this yeah. alien of extraordinary yes. ability for 10 years. <laughs> but it meant that I could only make money selling screenplays. Mm-hmm. And by this point, you know, I was you know, mid-20s at this point, and you, I still just it didn't know actually how vulnerable that made me because when you in Hollywood, you sell a script, and they send you out into all these general meetings. You basically pitch yourself, like I used to call it the Sal Show, where you, you have to convince these producers, development execs, creative execs, why you should write their next script. Now, either you're pitching your own ideas or they've got ideas in their mind and they're just basically auditioning to see if you're the right person. For the job, so you've got to talk about your own life, basically. And so I would always be very upfront about my visa and, and all of that. It was sort of part of the story of being you know, this young woman from Australia who was over there sort of living a dream not realizing that, that I was actually basically telling all of these men that you have total power over me. I, I've got no, no power at all in this country. Um, and it was sort of unavoidable. There was no way around that. So basically I got into the industry really quickly and then I would go to these general meetings and it was for a little while I had a boyfriend who was in the industry. He was an agent at a different agency of another really big one. And I was quite protected during that time. Even though I wouldn't bring him up, people knew that I was in a relationship with him. But then we, that relationship ended and it was like a switch was flipped. So by this point, I think I was at like 27, 28. And I, it was, I mean, I'd never experienced sexual harassment or like abuse of any kind before. But I mean, it was, it was so overt. Like it was just every cliche you could think of just come like coming onto you, like changing meetings to drinks meetings at night instead. And you'd be like, I'd be like, okay, well, I mean, you know, networking, this is, it, it is very sort of Hollywood in the industry. So you don't, I didn't think too much of it. And I like to have go and have a drink at a bar. It's fine. But they just weren't business meetings. And I, it was like dates. And I was like, this isn't what I want to do. There was one, the first big thing that ever happened, it was actually in an office with a producer. It was a guy and he sat on the couch with me. Usually they would sit on the other side, like, you know, there'd be a coffee table in between you. And when we sat down, he sat on the couch with me. I was like, that's just sort of weird. And I'm sitting there doing my thing. And he just sort of had this like weird look in his eye the whole time. Then as I was leaving the meeting, before he opened the door for me to leave his office, he literally put his hand down my pants and went, you look really good in skinny jeans and just sort of, and just took it out and just smiled at me. And it was one, one of those moments where I was like, did that just, I don't even, did that happen? Like I, I don't even, I remember just walking through like the building and the car park going like, have I lost my mind? Like that didn't happen. Have I just, have I gone crazy? I just didn't know. Cause it was just, I was so weirded out by it and just was instantly traumatized by it. And I called my representation and who were all men, which is another interesting, important point in the story. And they were like, they were like, he wants you to write him a script, write him a script. Off you go. Like, this is great news. It was just completely over their heads. Like there was like nothing else had happened, but I was going, I never want to be in a room with this man ever again. And so I didn't write him a script. I didn't respond to anything. And so, immediately I was unprofessional and that that sort of you start building that reputation as being difficult and unprofessional because you're not delivering on things 
And there was a few more situations that happened over the course of a few, over a few years. But there was also like about a, about a year where I just, I, every day I would sit down and I would try to write and I physically could not write because like it was all in my head, all my ideas, everything I wanted to get out there. But as soon as I sat in front of a computer or with a, just a blank piece of paper, I, I couldn't articulate it. Everything became completely muddled in my head. And I've since learned through therapy that that was a survival mechanism. It was my, basically my instincts just going, no, because if, if I write this script, I'm going to be back in those rooms. Mm. And so it was just, I was like, so it was self-preservation. But my entire livelihood was connected to writing these scripts and, and making a living. And I was running out of money. And so I just, I was, I was having a breakdown. Like I remember it got, to, there was one day where I was, it was in LA and I was laying in bed and I was a shell of a person. Something else had just happened with another producer and I was staring at the ceiling going, I can't get myself out of this. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go to New York because there's still industry in New York. I'm not giving up. I, 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 cause I was, I was determined to not give up. I wasn't going to let them win. So I was like, if I go there, then at least I can, I can keep going. I haven't, I haven't let them win. And I definitely felt better in New York and there's lots of great experiences there. But then in the end, I just had, I had to come back and have some family time. And so I, you know, I'd been almost in like over there for 10 years by this point. And so I got back home and <laughs> I was only coming home for three weeks. And then it sort of, I extended it. I was like, I'm going to go and do some therapy. And in therapy, it was the, to just recover from it all. My therapist said, you need a strong female support network in your life. <laughs> Those words have defined the next five years of my life. Because I was then like, you know, I was staying with my mom and dad and I would talk to them, talk to my mom about everything that I was learning in therapy to recover from it. I was telling her everything that had happened in LA because I hadn't told them because I, because I wasn't getting any support from anyone over there. And I knew if I told my parents, they would just drag me back home. And I just, I didn't want to give up on the dream of what I was over there to do. So, you know, she was learning and she just felt horrible. She hated what had happened. And one night she just went, why don't we create an app for women so that they can have support? And it was going to just be a roommate app at first. It was just going to be a place where women could go and find other women to live with so that you could have sort of just these, you know, sort of share houses that were just women, basically. I lived in one in New York. It was part of the thing that was really helpful to me in New York. It was actually the only good thing that I sort of had in my life at that point. And then we just, as we sort of started developing the idea, we were like, oh, well, if you're going to have something for roommates, it should be freelance work as well. And then there's like just general areas of support that you would need, whether it's emotional support or what about like, you know, what if you're a mom and you've got like a child that's being bullied, but you could just connect with other moms to talk about that and get support. Like we just thought of all like 50 or 60 different reasons of why women could want to connect online and sort of have this female support network in the palm of their hand. So we, we went out, we got um, investors so that we'd be able to build the app. We did, I mean, I don't code or anything. I, I know nothing about this. And in creating this, I, this app and, and sort of thinking of this new thing for women, the anger that I had about having to leave my previous career went because I was like, I always had written about women and wanted to write stories about women. And now I was like, no, I'm doing something with women in what felt like a more meaningful way. Cut to February, 2020, we were just doing testing on the app store and Google play of the app. 
and trans activists found it. It wasn't launched yet or anything. And they inundated it with one-star reviews calling us transphobic and TERFs, and I'd never heard this term before. I had no idea what was going on. They destroyed any chance of it being launched in any normal way. I mean, we were canceled. They, they say cancel culture doesn't exist. Like I've literally, the app was canceled before it was even launched. So we, at this at this stage, you say that you weren't aware of any of this, this nope. tra- trans stuff. Was it just pitched as an app for women? It wasn't even explicitly yeah, like, natal women. It was just an app for women. Like so, it was in my mind and everybody else that we had pitched it to would have just been thinking women like you or I, I mean, because there is, there is no other kind, you know, it's just women. And, you know, even when you're creating an app, when you build, when the coders are building it, you have to actually, with the app, the app store and Google play, you have to get approved constantly, like, cause they, it's very regulated. So, uh, you know, even the concept of what the app is has to get approved. So, at no point, even with the App Store or Google Play, did they go, oh, hang on, we'll actually know you're transphobic bigots or something, or you have to include men who think that they're women, or, or even question it. No one even raised it. So that's why when it happened, it was just such a shock because we'd had a really breezy time up until then. Like everyone had been so supportive, but we were, talk- we were preparing for the launch. We were talking to different me- like media, like in Australia, in the UK, of re- getting of different people ready to launch it. And then as soon as we were called transphobic and turf and whatnot, none of those places would even respond to an email, take my calls, nothing. Like it was just everything changed. So I basically, I went on to, to Twitter and at the time on Reddit, there was the gender critical subreddit. And I found that, which I didn't even know that existed. And I, I just sort of read and saw what all of these women were talking about. And I remember there was a few, a, a few days, like I was, I had like engaged a bit because I was just like, I couldn't believe it. I just didn't, I had no idea. And so I was like, this couldn't possibly be happening. And, and also there's that still thing in your mind where, you, you know, you've, I'd heard that there was, you know, be inclusive and be kind. And I was like, of course, that seems like a great idea. So you have that there in your head and you're thinking like, it's sort of this war that begins straight away when you're trying to process everything. And then I was like, okay, I just need to sit back and, and learn as much as possible. And I spent a few months doing that. And then JK Rowling's tweet, the, you know, the woman, the tweet about periods that happened. And then her essay came out and I was like, okay, I'm ready to, to speak out about this. And that even, gosh, when I think back to then, I still didn't know nearly enough really to be able to speak out about it. I was still so confused about the issue and scared. Like, I mean, I, I, I went along with the language for a little bit and tried to incorporate being kind and inclusive in how I was speaking. And now I'm not, I'm one of those very weathered turfs who've been around the block, <laughs> but you know, it was just all part of it. And I was, I was, you know, there were all of these lies that were being told about you know, this, this startup for women. And I was just, I was just absolutely devastated because the first thing I thought was, oh, cool. Men are going to destroy the next thing I do as well. Like I just feel at this point, my entire professional career has just been dodging male abuse purely because everything I've ever wanted to do is sort of centered women in some way or another. So yeah, that's basically where we are now. So cut to three and a half years later, and I'm now being taken to federal court by a man who claims to be a woman because I said no to him being on the app. 
this is in no way a person who was unique or special in terms of coming on the app. Thousands of men tried to go on the app. Sometimes it was thousands in a day. So talk to me a bit about your your um your like filtering process. Did you have what was your system in place to try and keep men off the app? So when we came up with the idea, it was actually my dad who brought up that because he would sort of he is a bit like techie and stuff like that. And he was the one who was like, Well, you'd have to like how would you make it female only? Like, how would you police this? And my mum and I were like, hmm. We we just sort of we were very much the ideas ladies and then sort of thinking of color schemes um and he did some research and he was like okay well if you're going because we'd have to we'd, there'd have to be some sort of safeguarding gatekeeping way to do it because there there just are men out there who don't respect women's boundaries like we talked so talking about it a lot and we're like the reason you would need a female only space is because there are men who don't respect women's boundaries. Right. So it's the reason to have the safeguards in place. It's the yes. reason to have the safeguarding. Like yeah. you can actually have male only spaces quite effortlessly because women will self exclude from them if it's already completely male dominated. Like for example, you can have a male only gym really easy. Just put a bunch of huge guys in there, make it really dark and industrial looking, play heavy metal music. And there's just women that are just going to walk past and go, oh, that looks scary. I'm not going to go in. Whereas a female only thing, you've got the men who go, well, I want to go in there specifically because it's just for women. I suppose the only exception to that would be um, there have been, and I mean, we can get onto this and thinking about male only spaces as a kind of symmetrical issue because there have been cases, I'm thinking of somewhere like the Garrett Club in London, this like posh gentleman's club, where there have been pushes for years and years from feminists to have access. So in some of those kind of very elite male only enclaves, yes, you might get a legal challenge, but you wouldn't have a like, yeah, you, it's quite easy to just, to just, make a place kind of default uh, homosocial. Yeah, because you've been also in those sorts of male-only places, If you and you're going back to sort of originally why women wanted to sort of invade the male-only places, it's because you're getting into a little bit of the places where decisions decisions about society are made, in business and society, probably more, more so business even these days. So I understand to a point why there is an argument for those sort of really elite clubs of why women should be in them because women are in that work, that class of of people now. But I also am very much still, I think that men should have like male only recreational spaces because I think that it's really healthy to sort of have guy time just as it's really healthy to have girl time. You know, this is, I think it's really natural for us. Um, I sort of think you can have any sort of space that you want. I, I, I can't even really think of one thing where I'm like, oh, that's really pushing it too far. Because it's sort of, as we sort of exist in this colourful world all together. And if you just want to sort of go over to like a little app or some venue that's just, it doesn't really make much of a difference anymore. But that, I mean, that's sort of much more to say about that. And I understand that it does get complicated. But yeah, so basically to take it back to how we were doing it, my dad had found that there was this company called Kairos that they did, um, they call it gender verification software, but they're using gender. And it's still, I didn't even know that there was anything at this time because gender was the polite synonym for sex. And that is how they're using it because it's male. It can detect male or female by a photo by looking at you. And I remember when I heard it, I was like, well, that's awesome because 
we do actually just know if someone's male or female by looking at them. I didn't know anything more about that. That was just my instinct. Now I know much more about the science of it. But, and I was like, and then the selfie part of it, I was like, we take a million selfies a day. Like this is, to me, it was like just the least confronting way. It was just, it was sort of just quite seamless. You just take a selfie, it would say, okay, you're fit, like, you're, you're in. And we did testing of it and it worked. Like that was the crazy thing. I was like, wow. And we, when we were under attack in February, 2020, we didn't have the settings on that yet, like implemented. Cause that's just, we were getting everything ready to, to launch. And so all of these men did get on the app. And like the first things they did were create like kill turf profiles. So that's how I was introduced to the term of like rape turfs and kill turfs. What the hell is a turf? And so we had found through testing that 94% accuracy was the best for us. And it did let some men on occasionally, but it didn't deny any women. Like, so it would deny a woman if like, it was like a really blurry photo, but that's just because you haven't taken an adequate photo. Yeah. You wouldn't want a lantern jawed women excluded. Yeah. Yeah. And we made the decision rightly or wrongly that we would rather occasionally kick off a man than deny a woman. And so that's what we did. And that's how the Tickle V Giggle case, he got on. And it's not because it verified him as female. It's because he's in that 6% of men that we knew would get on there. Mm-hmm. And we just so removed who, him. who is this guy, Tickle? I'm <sighs> sorry, but it is a funny legal name. It's <laughs> Tickle V Giggle. Tickle V Giggle. And then my last name's Grover. Like, it's just, it just sounds like a puppet show. It's just, it couldn't <laughs> get any worse. Um, and I kind of like it in the sense, like, you know, you just have to laugh because if you didn't laugh at this, you would lose your mind. Um, so basically in 2021, so we, we had made the decision that we would just tread water as a startup because no one, no investment places would work with us. Like no media would speak to us I was like my only avenue here is to tweet and to try and correct some of the lies and and tweet and and hope that that just informs some people that oh there's been a big lie that's happened of just me going like it's just an app for women like this shouldn't be controversial and and I also was like no as it went on I was like I want to stand up for women's rights this is even bigger than what I thought it was when I first sort of when it all first happened, I was introduced to it. So at this point, I had been tweeting for about six months. And in the beginning of 2021, Australian trans activists found me because I was tweeting in support of a place in Sydney called MacIver Ladies Bars, which is these rock pools in Sydney that have been women, this woman-only area for like 140 years. <laughs> So it's not a recent thing. And suddenly there were these men who claimed to be women saying that they should be able to go to it. And I was like, this is a, like, this is a rock pools where like elderly women go to Muslim women, Orthodox Jewish women, women who are recovering from cancer treatment. Like this is a really special and needed place. It's very secluded, beautiful beach for women to just not have to sort of be on display or self-conscious or anything and just be around other women. I think that needs to be protecting. Anyway, no, Macabre ladies' baths caved pretty quickly. 
Um, it's run by volunteers. They didn't... Same thing happened in Hampstead Ladies Pond in London. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's when trans activists first, like I was sort of, I think, I, I think from my experience, it was the first time that I'd been put on the radar of trans activists in Australia. Anyway, in that, um, about a month later, this particular man who is Australian, he's in his 50s, he went on the app. And I'll connect why that is important later, because th there is connection here. But he went on the app. Um, we, I missed him for a bit. I would have missed him because he wasn't using it. So I, I missed him when he first went on. Um, and then, you know, if he wasn't a daily user, if he wasn't opening the app, I, I wouldn't see that he was on there. Um, so it was sort of then, you know, as soon as I saw that he was on there, it would have, been, I don't remember kicking him off because it, it's just another day. Like, it just, it's, I, there's so many men, I, you could sh show me a picture of him now, my, I, I have no recollection, but yes, it would have been me who did it. You know what I mean? You immediately clocked that he was male from his photo. The app I just. Oh, yeah, it wasn't you, like any behavior you're thing or human anything. I, I would always just go through all the like onboarding for the day and the users just to make sure. Like we would just check, make sure it was just all women because, you know, there would be a guy that would get through occasionally, so we'd just make sure. And, yeah, if we saw a guy, we'd just kick him off. And I saw a man and I kicked him off. Did these men who were coming on, did they tend to be like female presenting? Were they long hair and all of this or did they just look? stereotypically male or or a mixture a mixture but i would say in terms of the ones who would attempt to get on because there's lots in, like when i say like thousands upon thousands and so like a tiny percentage of those thousands even ever got on and we just removed them i mean the overwhelming majority and i would say 99 percent of men trying to get on were just quite so obviously men now i don't know what they're inner identity is, nor do I care. Um, and in this particular case, because I've had to go back and, and look at this particular image so many times now, it is the one like onboarding selfie from the whole thing that I remember now. So it's become such a big part of my life. Still to stay, I was like, that is so clearly a man to me. I, I it, and I, turns out I'm not wrong. <laughs> it, it was man. Yeah. Um, and so, is, and I, so I don't remember it because like actually physically doing it, but I know it would have been me at that particular time when it would have happened. It was definitely me that was doing it. And then about a month later, um, I got a call and text on my phone from him saying, and I didn't keep this text because I didn't ever think I'd be being taken to federal court. So I, I did delete it. But it was like something along the lines of like, hey, this is my name. I've been kicked off the app and I want to get on something like that. And because, and so I just had this text, and so bec and because I had the phone number, that was like the one anchor on the app for users that we actually had. We didn't have any other data or information or anything. It was just you know you had to enter in your phone number. So I could I typed in the phone number to the server, and and the onboarding picture came up, and I was like, well, that's a man. And so I actually called my dad, and I I said like this man who I we've kicked off Giggle um, has called and texted my phone. And what do I do? And he said, block his number and don't tell your mother. Because my mum does actually live in like perpetual fear for my safety because she sees what the activists are all like and everything. And so that's what so I did. I blocked his phone number from my phone and I deleted the text in that sort of get this out of my life. Mm. Like, um, you know, sort of just pretend it didn't happen kind of thing. 
Mm-hmm. And then I just continued on. And then what it would have been two and a half months later, I got an Australian Human Rights Commission complaint for gender identity discrimination. He went to. Now, to connect that back to what I said at the beginning about the Macaiva Ladies Baths, in that January 2021, um, when trans activists in Australia had first, or I assume first, or at least first interacted with me from in terms of some media figures and things like that, and, and trans activists realised that I was Australian or whatever, I did have an interaction on Twitter with this person. I had I'd only learned this since having to go back and research it all, like I learned all of this during the human rights complaint phase. And the interaction that we'd had on Twitter was about the one-star reviews. I'd done a tweet saying trans activists are leaving one-star reviews for my company. Like, this is what happens when you're trying to do something just for women. And we had like a two-tweet comment. And then I blocked him, not knowing. I didn't know his name. I just block every trans activist. Sometimes I will respond to them so that my response is there for other people to see. And then I just block, because especially at that time, because that was still when we would get kicked off for saying men aren't women. Like you had to be so careful with your speech. So I would just try and curate my Twitter experience as much as possible. So I blocked this person. How I also know that I blocked this person is I have since learned he tweeted, Sal Grover, CEO of Twitter, has blocked me. And then he went on the app. So this guy went on the Giggle app, knowing exactly what it was, knowing exactly mm. what my position is, and then everything yeah. has followed from there. Provoking you to block him from the app so that he could then kick up a fuss. So it's now, you know, I mean, you know, somebody who I, would, I wouldn't know this person. This person would have just been a blocked person on Twitter. I would never have ever known him. Now has become such a big person in my life, and it's, and you know, I mean, this case, it ta- I mean, it does, it takes up your entire life. But my solicitor, Kath, she said at the very beginning, she was like, once you have experienced litigation, you will never want to do it again. And she is 100% right about that. It is hell. It is a roller coaster. And especially in for this, because, you know, the premise of the case is sort of built on a lie. It's just this man claims to be a woman. Do I have to accept that or not? And, you know, of course, you would sit there going, of course, I don't have to accept that. But in 2013, the amendments into the Australian Sex Discrimination Act put gender identity in there and it's muddled the act. So it's it's not that it's like, oh, I definitely have to. It's, a, it's muddled. No one's challenged it yet. We're the first ones to challenge it. And let's find out, does sex still have weight in the Sex Discrimination Act? Or is it just gender identity, which is absurd because who has a gender identity? So explain um, who, what the Australian Human Rights Commission is and why they would, why they would, you know, agree to represent the interests of this person. So the Australian Human Rights Commission is, you know, just like any other human rights commission um, that any country has. Then they also have within it the Sex Discrimination Commissioner. It's like an official government body. It's not the name of some sort of charity yeah, you know, or lobby group official, or anything yeah, like sorry, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Government body. And so within it, you have the Sex Discrimination Commissioner. And my um, observation is that the Sex Discrimination Commission is the place that has been captured by activists. So I think the Human Rights, Australian Human Rights Commission on the whole, like on some issues, they actually still are quite reasonable. On this, they are not. Um, but for example, 
we have a in Australia it's called the misinformation bill that's sort of about to become the next hot topic where basically I mean everything can be censored as misinformation if the government so chooses it to be classed as misinformation, which is an absolutely terrifying position to be in. And the Australian Human Rights Commission has said absolutely no way that this is complete overreach, you can't have this. So it's really interesting that the Australian Human Rights Commission would basically defend your right to call a man who claims to be a woman a man, but then the Sex Discrimination Commission would force you to see him as a woman. So there's that complete mm. conflict within, within the organisation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But so when, so I, when I got the human, the Australian Human Rights Commission complaint and it's for gender identity discrimination. Incidentally, I was 15 weeks pregnant at the time. And my mom said, you never ever mentioned this, so I will mention it. I was actually in isolation. I had COVID. So I was 15 weeks pregnant, had morning sickness, and I had COVID. It was <laughs> the worst week of my life. Yeah. And Business Insider had just done an article saying that Giggle was racist, which it is not. And they had completely left out of the article my answers I had given them, showing them and explaining why it was not racist. So it was just a horrible week that was then topped off with an Australian Human Rights Commission complaint. I was like, how could this possibly get any worse? So what happens when you get a, a complaint is you basically, I mean, you go and you, you get legal representation. Um, which which costs an arm and a leg, presumably. Well, at that point, it was the, the um, lawyer that I was recommended to go with. She was lovely. She was doing it pro bono at this point. And basically, you can go to the Australian, the commission is there to basically moderate and try and resolve the issue before it escalates and goes into the court system. So you go, you can go to what is called conciliation. And basically, their side puts on the table what, you know, their, um, you know, basically their um, conditions for settlement. And his conditions for settlement were that he would be allowed on the app, that all men who claimed to be women would be allowed on the app. I'm obviously paraphrasing how he phrased that. Um, that I would apologize, that I would go to sex and gender education, and that I would moderate the content of the app so that no man who claims to be a woman would be offended by what the woman was saying. Just like, that is absurd. I was like, there's not a single thing that I would apologize, like do that. Maybe I'd apologize in the sense I'd be like, I'm sorry, you're a man, but you can't come on the app. Like that's about the extent <laughs> of my apology. Um, so I was just like, absolutely no way. And you know, as this was draw like dragging on, you know, I was at this point like probably about 30 weeks pregnant kind of thing. And you know, I was really, I had really bad morning sickness. I was really sick the whole time I was pregnant. It was hell. I just, you couldn't pay me to do it again. Um, and I was just like, I'm not going to agree to any of these things. There's no point in conciliation. I, wait, there's no negotiation that's going to happen here. I knew that. And so I said no to going to conciliation at all, which I had the right to do. So I was like, in, my, in a way, in my mind, I was like, I'm not going to waste everyone's time. I'm not going to put myself through it. It was so stressful. And so when, so basically it means that the, the issue is not resolved. And so the AHRC can then um, advise the applicant of what they can do, which because it was an Australian human rights complaint, so it was a federal one, not like a state-based one, they then can go to federal court. And what they were, you know, the part of the law that they were interpreting and engaging in was the Sex Discrimination Act, you know, it's got gender identity in it, it's muddled. And the Australian Human Rights Commission, I felt like my just interpretation of it at the time, said they were just treating me as if I was guilty. 
like we had responded with our things of like, you know, this is, um, it's an app for females, this person is not female, blah, blah. And it was just, it was just like, it was just completely ignored. They weren't, they weren't even willing to sort of engage with that. And so, you know, you're being treated as guilty for something and you know you're not. I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage with that. Like, it's like we've got to be, you know, if I'm not the one that's not going, that I'm not the one that's unwilling to have a reasonable discussion about this, even though I said no to conciliation. I want to have a reasonable discussion, but I know that there is no reasonable discussion on the other side of this. So I'm just not going to put myself through it. So then two months later, so you have 60 days to file in federal court when an issue is not resolved. And, and he did on the 60th day, um, just to drag it out as long as possible. And so within, you know, minutes of, of being, finding out that it was going to federal court, I had a barrister, I had a solicitor, like we were ready to go, started, had meetings, started preparing the first response to everything. And then he withdrew. And it was so shocking that like my mom and I, I think we were in like the baby room setting stuff up because this was like in June. I mean, I was due to have her in the July and we're like, I just got an email that Tickle has withdrawn. Like it was a federal court email. I was like, oh my God, it's over. It's done. And, and everyone on the legal team said, take this as a win. Like you stood your ground. Yay for you. So we did. Um, and then in December, of the same year, so six months later, he refiled and he refiled on the same claim. So he was then classed as being out of time. So it was like 200 and something days out of time. So the federal court now had to accept it. And he, he claimed that he'd withdrawn because he didn't know if he had the money last time. Now he'd sort of gone and he'd gotten some funding from sort of a, a legal aid fund that, I don't know, helps stupid court cases. Is he getting money from like uh, state-funded legal aid? It's called the Grata Fund, and so basically they give grants to people who are doing, you know, sort of important social justice work. Okay, is this basically. taxpayers' money? Yes, 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 yes. And okay, so, marvelous. Go on. <laughs> yeah. So then it had to be accepted into federal court. So I found out about that he'd refiled because on New Year's Eve last year. At like midday, someone sent me an article from The Guardian Australia going, oh, Tickles and Giggles, like, back on. What are you talking about? And it was this article about it. Like, I hadn't even been served yet. And it was the most read article on The Guardian. And I was like, and so within that, 10 minutes within that on New Year's Eve last year, it was like, again, I had the legal team, like, we were ready to go again. And it wasn't until April, because it's just everything moved so slowly, that the federal court accepted it. Um, that it could go ahead on the grounds, basically, that it was in public interest. That, and so in our defence for this whole thing, we are doing a constitutional challenge, which basically we're saying, like, gender identity shouldn't even be in Sex Discrimination Act. This, this shouldn't even be allowed to happen because female-only spaces and women's sex-based rights are literally the bedrock of the Sex Discrimination Act. That's why it exists. Um, and so... You guys have, they have put gender identity in there where they're not actually allowed to because this, the Australian Sex Discrimination Act um, exists because of CEDAW, which is the Convention of the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, which is the UN you know, thing. I'm very bad at explaining this. It was created in 1979 
Australia became a signatory in 1983. And basically, because we've become a signatory, we had to do something with it, like put it into effect, into law. And so in 1984, they did the Sex Discrimination Act. It was specifically for females. CEDAW is for females, everything. And so in Australia, it's called is it, and the external powers or something like that, that basically if you're going to do amendments into something, there is a way that you have to go through it when it's not something that's being voted on because these laws were never voted on, these amendments. No, no, no gender law in Australia has ever been voted on. And so basically you can only put things in that are under sort of like the treaties and conventions that are like all aligned. And so for CEDAW, you could only make amendments to the Sex Discrimination Act, basically, that were in line with CEDAW. But CEDAW doesn't deal with gender identity, but they've put gender identity in. Now they claim that they've put it in because of the, I'm sure you've heard of it, the, the Yogi Kata principles. But the Yogi Kata principles are a document that it's essentially minutes to a memo that um, has been rejected by the UN, um, has not been signed by all like signatories of CEDAW. They literally have no legal standing at all, but they've been used by activists to intimidate millions of people um, as if they are a convention or a treaty that we're all part of, and they're not. And even now with some of the human rights lawyers who put together the Yogi Kata principles, which were basically these principles about sexual orientation and gender identity rights, which they're in conflict, but anyway, um, they have since come out and said like things to, uh, to the effect of, well, we weren't, we didn't, we got some things wrong here. We weren't even thinking about women, but also this, we were never, the intention was never to override women's sex-based rights. So there's just so much, some messiness over here with all of these laws, these treaties and how it's supposed to be happening. But then you have, say, the Australian Human Rights Commission that's going, no, 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 this is just law. This is how it is. And punishing um, women like myself or lesbian action group in Australia that was just denied an exemption to hold female-only lesbian events like there's any other kind. Um, and so in the Tickle v. Giggle case, the Australian Human Rights Commission has since intervened in the case as amicus curiae, which is normal. The Australian Human Rights Commission does intervene in cases to be there to interpret the law. And so they've intervened in our case and confirmed my initial suspicion that they were treating me as guilty by just interpreting the entire Sex Discrimination Act to be about gender identity. Um, they make absolutely outrageous claims like human beings can change sex, that biological sex is not binary. It can't even really be defined what biological sex is. Um, I, when I was reading their submission, I really started drinking around the time where they were saying basically that a man's desire to be pregnant is sufficient enough to make him a woman. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, just like the most outrageous things. We just go like, this doesn't even make sense. But anyway, that's that's their case. <laughs> The thing that really jumps out about uh, to me about this is that this is the government doing this to you. Like you're a private citizen trying to set up a business and you've got not only is this the uh, Australian Human Rights Commission and the federal courts, you know, like causing you this grief. This guy is also being funded by the taxpayer to do so. I yeah. presume I presume you are not being funded by the taxpayer in your defence fees. Well, uh, only in that it's wonderfully generous taxpaying citizens that donate to my crowdfund. That's the right. Only way yeah, it's funded by the taxpayer. Yeah, so the yeah. asymmetry is very, very striking. 
I mean, how can you claim that this is a marginalized group, this marginalized yeah. oppressed group? It's like you've yeah. got laws changed in stealth and you have the government on your side. You're not oppressed. You're not marginalized. I don't walk around thinking that I'm marginalized or oppressed either. But if we were to look at what is happening here, I definitely have, or I'm being treated as if I have less rights in this group of people. Um, yeah, I mean, I have to, it's been a crazy year because just for federal court, I have to raise $500,000 for that. And we're, I think we're, about, we're almost at 170000 And it is a insanely difficult task to try and raise more money than most people earn in a year. It's because, it, uh, you, you know, $500,000 can roll off the tongue quite easily. But then when you actually see and think about how much money that is, it's crazy. And part of the reason that our defense is so expensive is because we're doing the constitutional challenge. They are not cheap. But you sort of, you have to do a constitutional challenge. You've got to challenge the law as it is because the law is this. You, there should never have been a situation where the Sex Discrimination Act, which specifically is an act for females, should have ever been muddled to include men in, in this manner. It, it, it's like, what's the point of the act? If the Sex Discrimination Act is more about gender identity, well, then it's the Gender Identity Discrimination Act. And you're going to have to rewrite the whole thing because none of it would make sense then. And also, I think the activists don't think about this as much as they should when they, they want gender identity. It even, if gender identity was to supersede sex in law, it actually harms a lot of, or disadvantages, I should say, I hate harms, disadvantages even a lot of the people that they are claiming to be for. And it, and it disadvantages them on the basis of sex. So for example, women who call themselves men, so let's just use the term trans men for a second, the rights that they are still exercising in society are their sex-based rights. That's why they can, that's how they can compete in female sport. That's how they get maternity, you know, care or you know, sort of any sort of, um, if it's like a mother specific thing. I know that there's lots of sort of that has become quite sexless in the sense it's more parental than mother, which is good. Like I think that, you know, dad's getting access to sort of that help is great, but you know, a lot of their protections and provisions are actually come down to sex. So if you make it that gender identity is the name of the game here, where do trans men go for sport? They're going to be excluded completely because they would be excluded from the female sex category. And nine times out of 10, they're not going to make it in any of the men's ones. So this whole demographic of trans people, all these people that say, you know, it's trans rights, well, they're actually going to disadvantage this one demographic. But then also you go further with it. Well, where do the, all of the other, the 72 genders, if gender identity is the thing, where, where are the cloud genders going? Like what sport are they? Because it's all coming back to their sex. It's the only way they have rights because we can't go and create things specifically for all these little micro genders, these neo genders that they've created. The only way any of this works that anyone has actual substantive rights is on the basis of their sex, even if there's someone who's rejecting it. Like if gender identity supersedes sex in law, literally the only group that benefits from that is men who claim to be women.
everyone else's disability. (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to say, that I think that, yeah, that's kind of the, right. So the elephant in the room for me with all of this is this guy's, uh, Takel's first name, right, is Roxy. I'm right about that. I've remembered correctly. Yeah, yeah Roxy. the reason I, the reason that really like stuck out to me is this is a this is a man in his fifties. I'm guessing a late transitioner who has chosen a name associated with like a teenage girl at best, right? A famous prostitute in the police song at worst. You know, like it's a very it's a very like it's not a typical name for a woman in an Australian woman in her fifties, right? Who's probably no, yeah, going to be called like Linda? Okay, <laughs> we see this <laughs> right? a lot with we see this a lot with like you know especially like sort of older men who transition, but actually even some precisely. But it's like you know they're never like Sandra and and Cheryl and yeah. you know it's yeah, yeah it's like Arabella and Caitlin Lily and, yeah with a Y yeah yeah it's <laughs> Caitlin yeah um, you know even it's, like, it's teenage girls' names yes. And the the elephant in the room for me is autogynephilia, right? Which I know that I think most listeners are going to know what that means, but most of the Australian public are not. But that for me is like the skeleton key for understanding what is actually going on here in terms of what is actually motivating these very like intense litigants and activists and which institutions just cannot like wrap their heads around. Sorry, go on. So yeah, so my I've got my answer to it basically. So first is autogynephilia is um, basically for anyone who doesn't know is um, a man getting off on the idea of himself as a woman. Basically, it's sexual arousal. It's a fetish. The episode is not over. There is another maybe thirty minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, pay subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, Please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much. <laughs>